This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Kevin Fagan, reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, and this is Dark Days. The 10 dark days in 1978 began on November 18th with the massacre at the People's Temple compound in Jonestown, Guyana. 913 people, most of them from the Bay Area, died at the hands of the mad cult leader named Jim Jones. The nightmare stretched to the assassinations of Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk, who was the first openly gay elected official in California. They were shot on November 27th by Dan White, who was an unhinged ex-supervisor. Those 10 days make up one of the most tumultuous periods in American history. They left anguish, horror, and an imprint on our culture and in our attitudes. In this two-part episode of The Centerpiece, you'll hear excerpts from interviews I recorded with eight people who have intimate perspectives on those days and what they mean to us today, all these 40 years later. Our conversations have been edited for time and clarity, but you can listen to the full interviews, most of them an hour or longer, at sfchronicle.com slash darkdays. That's where you'll also find my story, which is an oral history of those dark days of November 1978, as well as links to a huge collection of photos and vintage newspaper pages and articles. Here's who you're going to hear from in part one. Marshall Kilduff works with me at the San Francisco Chronicle, and he not only ripped the lid off Jim Jones and his rancid People's Temple quasi-religion, he was immersed in covering the politics of the time and the fallout of the Moscone Milk assassinations. He wrote a book on the Jonestown Massacre, and he's been a specialist in the years since then on the tragic legacy of those days. We have Jackie Spear, who's a congresswoman today, but back then she was an aide to the man who held the job that she now has, Representative Leo Ryan. He was shot dead at Jonestown, and she took five bullets and survived. Chris O'Sullivan is a historian at University of San Francisco and specializes in that tumultuous period of the 1970s. Tom Bogue was a member of People's Temple and escaped barely with his life back then. He took a shot to the leg. In part two, which is being released simultaneously, we have four more voices who are every bit as compelling. We have Yolanda Williams, who's a police lieutenant today. Back then, she was a member of People's Temple, and she escaped from Jonestown just a little bit before the massacre with her husband and her baby. And there's Willie Brown, who anyone who's lived in the Bay Area for the last 40 or 50 years knows. Back then, he was an assemblyman, and he knew Jim Jones, he knew George Moscone, knew Harvey Milk, and he has a perspective unlike just about anyone else from those days. We have Frank Falzone, who was a homicide inspector at the time and a friend of Dan White's, the assassin of Moscone and Milk. He ended up taking White's confession on the night of the murders, and in this interview, he gives more detail than ever on a later chilling confession he took from White about the killer's plans to take out two more people. And we have Ann Cronenberg, who was Harvey Milk's campaign manager and LGBT activist and still feels the pain of that time intimately, like so many others. But we're going to start with Marshall Kilduff. He works with me here at the Chronicle, and he wrote the essential article that exposed Jim Jones and the People's Temple religion and the abuses. In fact, 
His article in New West Magazine forced Jones to move to Guyana. He also was intimately covering the political scene at the time, and he knew Moscone, he knew Milk, and he has a perspective on all of this that few people do in all those years since. Here's Marshall. Well, at the time, it was a it was hugely scary, terrifying, and mysterious. I mean, nobody mm. in the city got it. Everyone wondered what would happen next. Would there be some sort of second wave? Who are these guys? Are they still around us? Or are they really all gone? Is it far away, way down there? That sort of thing. Was it near or was it far? You know, but now, 40 years on, it's a big zero. Nobody thinks about this anymore. There's no memorial. There's no monument. There's no consciousness of it. I mean, it's all... Facebook and Twitter in our world now, short-term memory, uh, no history books, no, no nothing, no recognition uh, of Jonestown, which is a goofy phrase or, or a word for a kind of faraway mass, something or other. I, I, the, the vividness, the scariness of what happened then, and then this sort of evaporated nothing, zero, nada right now is the biggest message to me, the biggest strange contrast. What, is it, what does it mean? What does it say about our people that we forget and move on on stuff like that? Well, I think people like to forget bad things. You might want to talk about it. You might want to think about it. There might be a better way to organize it, but it's human nature and, and a bad way to, to skip over uh, unpleasant things. And boy, was this unpleasant. Oh, terribly unpleasant. And, and it was part of a whole 10 days. You had Jonestown which was the, the blossoming of the, 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 the terrible end of the stuff you'd been reporting about. And then just nine days later, you had Moscone Mill. Yeah, that's the funny thing. Not funny, the strangeness of it all. Is you did these two huge gut-punch events within a, almost a you know, calendar flip of each other. That mm. There was no time between them. People were still rocked by the first one. Jonestown scratching their heads. Did I know somebody? Did I ever go to this place? Did I ever meet this guy? What is it they're saying about him right now? And then bang. Two dead right away in City Hall by guys we knew very well. Everybody that knew those three names, Moscone, Milk, White. Well, the weird thing was there, there was crossover. Uh, Jones had been a power broker. Uh, Moscone and, and Milk, as much as anyone, uh, defended him when the reporting started to come out about the abuses uh, and cult nature of his people's temple. Uh, Milk called the detractors liars and said Jim Jones was a great guy. And then you had them die. How, in the, how did he yeah, manage I mean, to the, get them the, under the, his wing? The, the memory of Milk and Moscone hmm. is far, far bigger than their links to, uh, to Jones. I mean, I, no one would suggest otherwise, but they were, the two of them, uh, fierce advocates or allies of Jones while Jones was around. And uh, that gets forgotten, but it's it's a small part of their legacy, to be sure. Yeah. But, you know, Jones insinuated himself in a liberal kind of world of San Francisco, and they were, Milk and Moscone, definitely big pillars in it. So they were part of the team that uh, welcomed him, advanced him, and stood by him when things got rough. He had a lot of company. I mean, they had a lot of company in that. It was, a, uh, you know, Herb Cain even wrote nice things about Jim Jones and, uh, the, uh uh, Willie Brown, uh, Merv Dimely, uh, even Rosalind Carter came and uh, uh, was at one of his events. They, they, how did he manage to fool people so much? I think people took him at face value. He was sort of benign, uh, very, very polite. Uh, he would show up on time, bring a big crowd, 
with them, alongside him. Remember, uh, a lot of these are uh, white liberals, and he had a big black congregation, which was uh, pretty nice to have if you were having an election campaign or advancing some big issue, civil rights, that kind of thing. He came through uh, when when you wanted to fill a room or have a parade or or have any kind of a rally, and that 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 has real value. Uh, remember, this is not tweeting and quick photographs on Instagram. This is when the six o'clock news mattered a bunch more than it does yeah. now, and a, and a big picture in the paper would help uh, in a big way. And, and my impression is from talking to other folks, including Willie Brown, he put on a good face and he had his followers, you know, cheer and act you know snappy clean and and uh friendly uh how could the were you surprised when your my reading of it is that when your new west story was about to come out with phil tracy uh uh it got read to jones before just before it printed and he evidently said we're going to guyana it freaked him out uh were you surprised when these guys up and left to this weird South yeah, American I was, a, I was a little surprised. I thought he'd stay and fight it out, you know, just deny it, um, fight back in some way, use his connections, you know, establish himself, stand up a little more and and reject the, the, the claims. I mean, plenty of people can spin doctor, why, uh, get themselves to damage control their way out of a problem. He didn't. But then you look at his track record. I mean, this guy, every couple of years, picked up sticks and went somewhere new uh, where he, he started over again. Uh, he liked to challenge his followers to look forward to the next sort of iteration, the next place to be, the next sort of challenge, the next the next spot to, to dig in and, and build something new. And this place they went to, again, it was really the end of the road. I mean, there's nothing there. Uh, it was carved out of uh, uh, this jungle that nobody really wanted or cared for. Uh, it was a far cry from Indianapolis to Redwood Valley to Ukiah to San Francisco, a little bit of L.A. This, those little jumps were just uh, frog hops compared to where they were going next, where they ended up. In the aftermath, you know, you wrote a book, The Suicide Cult, and uh, how many years did you have to follow this story before you could finally you know, kind of stop doing reporting on it. Well, I don't think you really ever do. Everybody has big stories they get tangled up with during their uh, writing life. And uh, this is obviously the biggest one for me. Is there one moment in that whole experience that stands out most to you? I, I think the minute I heard about it, I was half asleep. I got a phone call. Somebody told me that there'd been a shooting at an airstrip and uh, the guy that went in my place, Ron Jarvis, had been hurt, injured, more sure as a condition. I felt super scared uh, for his sake. Uh, guilt, of course, that it was him, not me. And then I began to worry about the temple's uh, folks in San Francisco. Obviously, the temple had done the shooting. Obviously, they'd gone after the media, who they viewed as tormentors and uh, people who were treating them unfairly. And obviously, that would include me. So was I in, the, in this target or not? What, what did I have to fear? So I was very spooked. I, I raced out of my house. I went somewhere, just drove around, didn't know what to think. So I was alarmed, bothered, uh, scared, puzzled. So what did you The do? very moment of it. That's, that's the yeah. key moment for me. And then you, then you went back to work? Yeah, sure. It's kind of what you do when you're a reporter, isn't it? <laughs> Therapy, yeah, work. <laughs> And then nine days later, when Moscone and Milk 
were killed? What was your, what was going through oh, your head at the time? Jesus Christ. I, I was like, wait a minute. This is like unbelievable. I was in a bank line. Remember those? Nobody stands in line at a bank anymore. Mm-hmm. And the tellers were all just talking to each other. And I thought, come on, let's go here. And they said, the mayor's been killed. And I didn't know what that meant. What mayor? What are you talking about? And then I tore out of there as soon as I figured out what they were speaking about. And then I, that was another, another days, another day in which I was in a daze. So, yeah. Mm. I mean, everybody remembers the few turning point moments in life. The Challenger crash, the, you know, the, the moment when uh, Milk Moscone got killed uh, for me, Jonestown, all those things. Those are my little hallmark moments. And uh, they came so close together, the, the last two was just, uh, it's very hard. Yeah, yeah. think two. about it. How did Jim Jones strike you initially and then uh, uh, later on as you got to know him better? I, I just never got a very good feeling for him. He, he didn't enjoy interviews. He didn't want to be uh, interviewed in a big way, talked to, uh, spend any time with. He was very controlled and careful, not very forthcoming, not a lot of uh, enjoyment there. Uh, and he always surrounded himself with lots of people who would uh, watch what you were asking. So it wasn't a very inviting, informal, uh, in, in any way disarming a s- situation. Um, he would call you on the phone occasionally if you asked for an interview or a quote or something, uh, but it was never long. It didn't take very, very, uh, very much time to talk to him. And he, he didn't enjoy the media at all, and it wasn't his wasn't his moment. Uh, only in, in, in these stage rehearsed big, big time settings was he at ease. It's strangely a, not one on one, but one on a thousand. Uh, it was the way he liked it. And, and uh, his church, you know, uh, his church meetings, his sessions were, were wide open and rolling. And I wouldn't say fun, but were popular with the folks in the room. And that was where he was in his element, but not, not across the table, not not uh, in a car driving somewhere. It was, it was much more stagey. That he that was the circumstance he enjoyed. That was Marshall Kilduff, whose article in New West Magazine blew the lid off Jonestown, and Jim Jones. Next up is Jackie Spear. Back then, she was working with Congressman Leo Ryan on the peninsula, and when people complained to her that something weird was going on in Jonestown, she and the congressman led a delegation over to Guyana. She wound up getting shot five times on the airstrip outside the compound, and the congressman wound up being killed. She released an autobiography this month called Undaunted, and that's a pretty apt word to describe her. She's overcome a lot of adversity in her life, but nothing tougher than what happened then. She's got a perspective that stretches all these years. What stands out for me is that 911 Americans were murdered, that the local government turned a deaf ear and a blind eye to what were egregious criminal activity in the People's Temple, and our national government, State Department, probably CIA, were derelict in doing their job both in terms of protecting American citizens abroad, which is a State Department function. And it's never been clear to me whether or not CIA was 
part and parcel of accepting what was going on down there because bauxite was a product that we were importing from Guyana that was used for the making of aluminum. Did they see that as a national security benefit? And so the socialist regime of Prime Minister Burnham was embraced both by Jim Jones and the country and therefore let sleeping dogs lie. And as it turns out, 911 people, many of them children, some 300 of them, were lying dead. And once you got there, the, the, you were first greeted with, you know, happy songs and this, this show. Did you, how, how quickly did it, did it dawn on you that you were being snowed? We first got there, we were given a tour. You're driving into the commune and you're seeing all these crops growing on either side of you. You've got a viable community, a pavilion, lots of cabins, a medical clinic, a day care center. And you can't not be impressed by how they had carved out a, a life for themselves there. And then we sat down at a picnic table and benches in the back of the pavilion and started interviewing young people mostly who had family members, parents typically, that were in Congressman Ryan's district who wanted to get letters to their children that hadn't been you know, rifled through or censored, uh, wanted to get a sense of the status of the health and well-being of their children. And so we started these interviews. And what was striking was how many of them said the same thing, as Mm. if scripted. What did you immediately make of that? Did you think it was just a church gone bad, or was it an actual dead-on cult? Well, early on, it was unclear except that there was clearly mind control going on. I mean, you just there was the roteness. And then shortly thereafter, uh, God bless him, Don Harris, the NBC reporter, was walking around the pavilion smoking a cigarette, and he got slipped a note with the names of two people that wanted to leave. So at the end of the evening, he comes up to Congressman Ryan and myself and hands us this note, and my heart just sunk. And I still get chills um, thinking about it. So then we knew. And then eventually... Our worst, worst nightmares were were being realized. We had no idea how explosive it was going to become over the next 18 hours. But um, we we knew that the the charade was off. How many people actually wound up loading up into the tractor and the trucks and going out with you to the airfield? I can't give you an exact number, but there were 25. Mm. There were another 40 people. This gets lost in many discussions on uh, Jonestown. There were another 40 people that wanted to leave, but we only had, we had one plane and then we had to order another plane. So Congressman Ryan was actually staying behind and was going to escort the second airlift out of Jonestown. And then when you were on the airstrip, when the... Uh, these guys showed up. Were you surprised when gunmen pulled off the tractor and started shooting? So I was, my job at that point was placing people on the two planes. And at the time, I was coaxing this little Guyanese 
boy who had scampered onto the plane out of the plane because we needed every seat. And so my back was to the tractor trailer. I didn't see it come onto the airstrip and I didn't see them jump off of the tractor trailer and start shooting. But but I heard the noise and then people were running. And then I turned around and Congressman Ryan had been shot and I'm running after following him. And then he was shot a second time and fell. And, and I put myself under uh, another wheel of the plane. Mm-hmm. And that's when you got shot five times. So I'm lying there, yeah. playing dead. And just, you know, what, what, what runs through your mind is I'm dying. And this kind of, res- you're resigned to the fact. And I said the act of contrition and then all of a sudden I was hit and I was shot five times um, I looked down at the right side of my body because I was lying on my side with my my face down um, and it was a gory sight I mean my right arm was blown up there was a bone sticking out of it my right leg was totally blown up um, And you're, yeah, I'm in shock. One thing that strikes me about that whole experience, uh, and which is reflected in this book you have coming out called Undaunted, is uh, everyone from Tim Reiterman to other survivors say that you were inspiring. You were uh, keeping your spirits up. You didn't just crumble into a soggy mess and, and give up. Uh, what what is it about that time? What, what, what is it that lets you come through that so strongly? And what has that done to you since? I, I would say that it was faith. It was, you know, once you're shot like that and, and, so, and wounded so badly and, and the lights don't go out immediately, there's the sense, well, well, maybe I am going to live. You know, Guyana, for you know all the uh, mind-boggling elements of it, the tragedy of it, the the, the uh, you know physical harm that it imposed on so many, uh, had this incredible silver lining for me. I lived. I was, I was given a second chance at life that. Most people never have. We go through life taking things for granted, and all of a sudden, I was there. I was at the edge of the end of my life, but was pulled back. And all these years later, you're doing Leo Ryan's job. Yeah. What do you, what do you, is there a responsibility from 40 years ago to be doing what he did, or how do you, how do you handle that legacy? Well, I certainly learned from him. Mm-hmm. He was a mentor to me. I mean, it was a short mentorship, certainly, but uh, I learned a great deal from him. I learned mostly to question the status quo, to, to go where others are afraid to go, to not be afraid to speak your, your truth. That's, and not to be afraid to fail. Did that event... Curious of being susceptible to cults. Talk a no, little more about it, that. No, it, it doesn't. And 
you know, in the end, no one is above the law. Not the people's temple, not the Catholic Church. And in both those circumstances, let's just look at sexual abuse. There was a lot of sexual abuse going on in the people's temple, as there has been pedophilia going on in the Catholic Church. And somehow, because they're, quote, churches and protected by the First Amendment, we step back and don't recognize that they're, uh, they must comply with the laws just like everyone else. How did Jim Jones manage to control so many people? So my uh, armchair um, psychologist analysis would be that many of these people were attracted to the People's Temple because it was an opportunity to be part of a movement that was going to create a utopia where blacks and whites could live together, where there'd be harmony, where everyone would be for one. Um, and I think that's what attracted a lot of young people to it, mm. particularly uh, young white and black people. What attracted older people, more mature adults mm. and senior citizens, was they had no one. They were lost. There were a lot of emotionally lost people that were attracted to the People's Temple because um, it was an immediate and instant family. You will find those people today too, won't you? You will. And that's why it's important to be you know, vigilant about making sure that there's not a corrupting force that will then you know, violate all these laws under the guise of being a quote church, and Jim Jones was a was a severe sexual abuser, wasn't he? Recount for me again a little bit of that for the, for the recording. Well, he, it was it was grotesque. Uh, he uh, sexually abused men and women. He did it to assert power, to humiliate them, to demean them, and it, it was. Grotesque, that's all I can say. What do you think Harvey Milk and George Moscone would have gone on to do if mm. they had lived? Because I think they, they seem to be following the same kind of path that you have followed all these years. Well, certainly George Moscone had interest in running for governor, and I think Harvey Milk could have become you know, the first gay elected statewide office holder. They, uh, they both had promising futures. But they'll live on probably more in death than they would have had they lived. It seems like you feel a responsibility to repeat it, because you've told these stories many times. Uh, is there a difference in telling it today than there was 20, 30, 10 years ago? Well, now I tell it as a history lesson. <laughs> Back then I was telling it as a contemporary set of circumstances. Um, the one thing I do notice with young people that when I go to speak to them, and I make a point of going to high schools in my district all the time, they kind of roll their eyes when I first start talking because I'm just another politician. But I come to life for them when I talk about Jonestown. And they begin to understand that they're 
is more to life than what they might have expected because we all learn from the experiences of others and Mm. I think I have a responsibility to convey that. That was Jackie Spear who views her responsibility as keeping history alive so it's a caution to us all. She talks a lot more about that history including her ideas about the involvement of the CIA and helping protect the People's Temple from investigation in the full conversation. And again, you can hear that and all of these interviews in full at sfchronicle.com slash darkdays. And while we're on history, we have Chris O'Sullivan next. He's an author and a historian at the University of San Francisco, and he specializes in this period. We'll talk to him after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Kevin Fagan of the San Francisco Chronicle, and this is Dark Days, an oral history of 10 days in November 1978, from the Jonestown Massacre to the assassinations of Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone. For longer interviews, text stories, and a huge collection of vintage photos and newspaper pages, go to sfchronicle.com slash darkdays. Now let's get back to our interviews. Chris O'Sullivan is an author and historian at the University of San Francisco, and he specializes in the tumult of those days, in the shocking killings like the Zodiac and the assassinations of Moscone and Milk, in sinister cults like People's Temple. And he can put this all into context for us. Think about it. We had, to us, what was the equivalent of the Kennedy assassination and 9-11 in one. Remember that um, the Jonestown debacle was, the I think, the largest... Uh, loss of American lives in a non-natural disaster up until 9-11. And then nine days later, we had the City Hall assassinations. And for a, for a lot of people, that's sort of this region's Kennedy assassination. That's you terrible. Know, this, this really shot, this you know, double whammy of shocking news. But think about it. Those two events were nearly 40 years apart, and these happened within nine days of each other. And I've mentioned before that that's an essential part of the tragedy, too, because just one of these kinds of events happening is shocking enough. But to have them so close to each other, I don't think we ever really came to terms with either one. I mean, Jonestown got very much overshadowed by the events that happened nine days later. And yet at Jonestown also, a United States Congressman Leo Ryan was killed in the beginning of that. That in and of itself is huge news, an assassination of a congressman. And then we suddenly find out as the days go on, I remember in those days uh, the, the various editions of the local newspapers keep coming out with the body count getting higher and higher. You know, that grim news every day. When you wake up, it was 200, and then it was 400, you know, later in the day. And eventually getting up to 900. And uh, then the assassinations only nine days later. So it's, uh, it's just a, you know, a wave of shocking events. What did that do to our sense of self here in the Bay Area? I don't know. You know, it's, it's so distant now. It is 40 years ago. It's hard to imagine what the Bay Area was like back then. 
it was sort of coming off the tail end of something of even the city had kind of a decline. Your know, population had been slowly declining since the peak of the war years. It was it was surprisingly relatively easy to live in San Francisco at that time. It wasn't as expensive as it would later become. The city wasn't in as much demand. You remember that in the 70s, there was a reason why they filmed all of those Dirty Harry movies here, is that San Francisco was perceived as a very dangerous place. It was plausible that you could have these stories of kidnappings and extortion and bombings, because we had those kinds of things going on here in the 70s. Talk to me a little bit about the the terrible things mm-hmm. that had happened yeah. in the 70s leading up to 1978. There was, mm-hmm. yes, there, well... Tell me, SLA, SLA the Zodiac, the, the kid, the kidnapping of Patricia Hearst, just about four years before these events, um, the the zebra killings, uh, the the Zodiac. Here, here we are at the Chronicle, which played a big, big central role in the whole Zodiac story. Um, and then, of course, just you know, outside of these crimes, we we had you know significant bombings going on in the city. Uh, um, there was uh, there were politics and. The mayor's race of 1975 was probably the most polarizing mayor's race the city has had in modern times. Why was it so polarizing? Well, you know, George Moscone had been a state senator. Um, He was now trying to move into municipal politics in 75. He announced at the end of 74 he was going to run for mayor. Uh, Dianne Feinstein was running for mayor again. Um, she was sort of the moderate in that race, and on the far right was real estate developer John Barbagelata. And Feinstein didn't get into the runoff, so what resulted was this very sort of polarizing race between Moscone, who represented a lot of the new politics in San Francisco. He was, he had the support of many people who hadn't been in, you know, they weren't the insiders. They weren't part of the old boys network. A lot of them were people of color. They were gays and lesbians. And this was kind of a new politics that was coming to San Francisco. Because remember, Moscone wasn't really part of the establishment. You know, he, he, um, he was revered for not really going downtown to get permission to run for mayor. Uh, he was very sort of an anti-downtown, anti-development that was, there was a perception of him in 75. Uh, Diane Feinstein was really much the establishment candidate, so it was kind of a surprise that she didn't get into the runoff. When Moscone and Milk got assassinated, Diane comes in to uh, be mayor. How did that change the direction of the city it, oh. it, from where it had been headed with the two others? Um, I think it changed it significantly. You know, there, there are different points of view on this. Um, many of Feinstein's veterans of Feinstein administration have argued that, uh, well, Moscone would have had to have come to terms with, with the pressures for development too. Moscone's defenders say he might not have; he would have had more, you know, mitigations. But I think, you know, on a positive sense, Feinstein, in retrospect, I know she gets a lot of criticism, and people, it's, it's sort of, you know, everybody's favorite sport is using Feinstein as a pinata, but. When you look back at that time, in retrospect, she was a, she was kind of the perfect person positioned to follow in that because you know one of the one of the key objectives was to try to lower the temperature in the city, to try to ameliorate all the polarization that had happened. She's always been kind of famous for that for that good temperament, and uh, as mayor, she really tried to sort of tack to the you know the center, and um, I think it took a lot of wind out of the sails of particularly the right extreme, because people forget in San Francisco and the Western neighborhoods in particular, there was a lot of support for 
you know, Barbara Gelato was a fairly right-wing mayoral candidate, certainly for San Francisco for any time, even prior to that and after. Now, when, when Harvey Milk was killed, uh, what effect did that have on uh, the gay rights movement? It, it, it could have stopped it. Yeah. Assassinations often stop momentum. Yeah. But did it stop? Not at all. at all. Not at all. In fact, uh, in, a, in a fascinating sense... Milk became sort of the first very prominent gay rights hero. He was a martyr, but he was also a hero. The film came out so quickly. It fascinates me how quickly the film, which came out only six years after his death, had such mainstream acceptance in a way that Milk himself, when he was alive, did not. You know, uh, recently I was doing research and looking at some of the national newspapers and how they responded to the events that were happening in San Francisco at that time. And maybe I was reading too much into it, but I got a kind of a, a... uh, a kind of a condescending attitude from national papers like the New York Times about our politics, about the fact that we had this openly gay elected supervisor, that I can see a sea change only a few years later, that um, there's there's more acceptance when the film comes out. Of course, even a decade or two after that, we have the major motion picture about Milk. So um, in a strange way, Milk's death expedites this greater acceptance of gay and lesbian people in our lives. Also, what about their youth? I mean, it's it's amazing to consider that Moscone was 49, Milk was 48. And in political terms, this is fairly young. I mean, Feinstein was only just a couple of years younger than them, and uh, she's still in the United States Senate today. Um, there's no telling in a political career where it's going to go, if you're going to peter out or if you're going to move on. But But these two individuals were... Uh, particularly Milk, because he was a relative neophyte. He was somebody who was relatively new to politics and had kind of a natural gift for it in a way, kind of a self-effacing sense of humor. His famous hope speech, which he began giving as his regular stump speech, was quite eloquent and well-prepared. And and he seemed to be like a a growing political talent with a lot of potential for the future, but that was all snuffed out in 1978. He gave a slogan for the the decades to come. It's kind of like Keep Hope Alive from Jesse Jackson. That was it. Was Harvey Milk's? Yeah, gotta gotta give him hope, wasn't that it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Dan White yeah. again, because um, uh, one interesting parallel that you have found is the <laughs> the insanity defense. Yeah, talk to me about the Twinkie defense, and it's it's, yeah. it's echoes in history. Yeah, well, I guess I guess technically Twinkie was something really that the media gave to this because it was. Um, I'm trying to remember the, the the way that they characterized the defense that he was. Um, it suddenly escapes me, but I think it was diminished capacity. diminished capacity. Thank you. That's precisely what I was looking for, and um, and that might have been motivated by excessive consumption of sugary snacks and junk food, which people immediately just sort of think of Twinkies. <clears throat> it's it's interesting that Twinkies is one of the one one things that that people remember about this because I have undergraduates from other parts of the country who always ask me about. The, twink, the so-called Twinkie defense, and they want to know about this. And it came up in a class just last week because we were talking about uh, James Garfield and his efforts to construct an insanity defense when, excuse me, but his assassin, Charles Coteau, when he killed James Garfield. And uh, students just on their own brought up the Dan White issue. And understandably, there was a great deal of outrage about this because it even seems to me, looking back on that time, if you read some of the journalism of the time, I'm surprised that there's not more outrage that the mayor and a supervisor have been assassinated. There's an awful lot of sympathy for White, perhaps more sympathy than you'd find for any other defendant had he not been 
a 30-something attractive white guy with the white, right credential, credentials and the right background. Remember, he was considered, quote-unquote, the all-American boy. See, that's interesting. I think, I think that had a lasting effect because uh, in, in crime reporting since then, you rarely see anyone uh, uh, characterizing the killer as a victim. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and and in fact, in most death totals, they don't count the killer. Uh-huh. Uh, when, when we say 913 people died at Jonestown, that doesn't count Jones. That doesn't count Jim Jones. He makes Jones. it 914. That's fascinating. I mean, there's a parallel there, too, because, you know, Jones, it, it also kind of irks me as a historian when we talk about this as a mass suicide, because I see it as a mass homicide. I mean, these, the people who were there, what choice did they really have? They'd been put through this drill a couple of times. They were isolated in this South American jungle. And remember, hundreds of the victims were children many of whom were African-American. And they, they certainly, I don't see how anyone can argue that they're anything but victims. And Jones is one of the biggest mass murderers in history. That by, by constantly calling this a mass suicide, in some ways it diminishes Jones's guilt and culpability for engineering this scheme that led to, led to this. That was Chris O'Sullivan, a historian at the University of San Francisco. Tom Bogue was a member of People's Temple. He'd been in it since he was a child. And on the day of the massacre, he was a teenager who hated the place. He wanted nothing more than to leave. So when Representative Ryan and his contingent showed up, he took the opportunity. He's different than a lot of the folks who were at People's Temple. He's conservative, and he's white, and today he's the mayor of a little town called Dixon in Northern California. And that's where I interviewed him. And this interview's a little noisy because for our talk, he wanted to meet in his favorite local restaurant. Here he is talking about how back in 1978, he wanted nothing more than to leave Jonestown. It was actually um, my father's stepfather and mother who told Ryan that we wanted to leave. What started it is I was up in the cottage area and I saw one of our elderly women pass one of the reporters a note. So there was actually more than one note being passed. And, and I remembered it distinctly because we were walking by some clotheslines, and I saw her pass this note off to the reporter. And I knew that was a major no-no. And the short of it is, is I went and told my father what I saw. And he said, well, go tell your mother and stuff to go up to the sawmill. Uh, we were supposed to get our family members to say, let's get up there because things are about to go bad. And so that's what we did. We went to the sawmill. We went to the sawmill. And how did your sister wind up staying there? She wanted to stay. And she was the only one in the family who wanted to stay? Yes, Marilee. She must have been two or three years older than me. So why do you think she wanted to stay? Well, she had married a guy down there, and he was staying and she was a little slow of mind anyway, and she had totally bought into the whole Jonestown, People's Temple, loyalty thing. I mean, I honestly believe had it been left alone, probably half the people would have left there. When the shooting actually occurs, I'm already on the airplane. The tractor and trailer pulled up. They got out, and they started shooting at the people outside and into our plane to start with. And you got, you took a, this is, you took a shot to the leg, right? Me and my oldest sister did. Which leg? Because, um, mine is my left. I'm just thinking of, of hers. Um, I think she got hit in the same leg. Mm. 
two different boats. So, it's basically what happens is is I'm in the seat directly across from the door. The lady sitting in front of me gets the back of her head blown off. Yeah. Brains fall up my feet, and then only thing that goes through your thought, your mind is is close the door or die. Sure. So you jump up and you start trying to close the door. And it was one of those gangplank doors. So I got it about halfway up. And I can't get it the rest of the way up. My sister grabs me, my oldest sister, it pulls on me, and we get the door closed. But that's in that process we get shot. Which, I mean, it's really, when you think about it, it isn't about the, but about the grace of God that we weren't killed right there on the, on the spot. It was our legs. And our legs are actually the lowest, I mean, the least. shooting up into a big plane. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it should have been a more higher shot. But it wasn't. After they'd gone around and shot everybody outside, we lowered the door down. Some of us come out of the plane, and so many screams are coming back, they're coming back. Me, my oldest sister, and the two Parks daughters, and one of their boyfriends all run directly into the jungle. And that's where we stay out there for three days and two nights running. So when you guys came back... We really didn't have anything to come back to in the way of a house or... Nothing. You're starting from scratch now. I ended up getting my GED. I used to change jobs like every three months. I just get bored. I went through a, a kind of a crisis point in my life. I got into drugs, became homeless for a couple of years. So how'd you wind up tearing yourself out of that? Well... Let's just say it gets old. How many years were you associated with that temple? Um, taking the age factor into consideration, 14 years. How did you become a normal guy after that? Because you, by all appearances, seem to be a pretty normal guy. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say I'm normal. No, I wouldn't say I'm normal. <laughs> I have a twisted sense of humor, that sort of stuff. But I had to address a lot of those issues myself. And the first thing was to recognize that I had issues with all this, which my current wife helped me out with. And once she initiated this, it never, uh, it never stopped. How did that whole cultish experience, how do you think that affected how all of us look at charismatic guys like Jones who ask you to give everything in exchange for you know, nirvana. I think it has been so long now and people still don't fully anal don't understand the way this happens to start with. You know, they're still so engrossed is in what happened play by play that nobody's really looking at the why, okay? And because they don't understand the why and the how it reached that point, they're just as susceptible today as we, they've always been to falling into the same trap. It's just like Waco. Question is, how did those people get sucked into it to start with? What kind of people were they? And then people who, who listen to the whys in the house have to sit back and ask themselves, am I 
that type of person who could get sucked into in the right conditions without even realizing it. I mean, look at today. We are so ripe for this type of group to come along again, this type of leader to come along again. You don't think we've become more cynical and, and, and defensive against that as a society? Uh, are you kidding me? Talk to me about look what's in the news. Look at, look at all the propaganda going out right now. Look at all the anti-government rhetoric being spewed out to people by our social media and other outlets right now. Okay? And all that's doing is stirring up people to say there's a better way. Okay? There's a better way. Now it takes us the person to come along and says, I'm going to make it better. And this is how I'm going to do it. And if you're really disturbed by what our society is doing, and you really want to make a change, <clears throat> you meet that individual who says, let me show you the way, and this is how we're going to do it. And they're like, yes, let's do it. Let's form our organization. Bam. A new movement's been born. It may not be called People's Temple. It's going to be called something else. But... The roots have been sown. And all these people said, I would never, 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 never. Next thing they know, they're in the leadership of it. That was Tom Bogue, who today is the mayor of Dixon and was shot as he escaped Jonestown way back when. We've got a lot more for you. Willie Brown talking about having to break the news to George Moscone's wife and wrestling with the memory of having been taken in by Jim Jones. You've never heard him talk like this before. We also have another former People's Temple member. We have the cop who took the confession of the City Hall assassin, Dan White, who was a friend. And we have Harvey Milk's campaign manager, Ann Cronenberg, who you might remember was played by Allison Pill in the movie Milk. That's all in part two of Dark Days, which is available right now. For producer King Kaufman and project editor Terry Robertson, I'm Kevin Fagan. Thanks for listening to Dark Days on the Centerpiece. The Centerpiece is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. The executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. Subscribe to the Centerpiece wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the Chronicle's digital or print edition, or both, at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.